0: Hi there, welcome to Beyond the Comfort Zone podcast. My name is Isra Hag from Fisheries Fitness and Nutrition. On this podcast, I'll be interviewing experts about the various topics taught in fitness education to better understand the research, challenge some beliefs and biases, and provide helpful information to all the other health and fitness professionals out there who may have questions just like mine. Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Now please remember that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. you soon right so welcome to another episode of the beyond the the comfort zone podcast where we have conversations with with industry experts on all things fitness and, and nutrition. Uh, The aim is really to call out misinformation and share with you evidence-based information, evidence-based approaches towards health and fitness, so that you can feel confident in making decisions around your health and fitness from an informed place now. Today is a momentous moment, as we've just been saying, uh, and I'm super, super excited to have this conversation with the, the goat of nutrition, as some people know him. Go and Google what goat means, right? But, but Alan, thank you so much for being here. Super excited to to have you here, finally.
1: It is my pleasure to be here. And um, yeah, I, I'm glad to actually <laughs> be here after I, I messed up the time zones last time. So thank you for your patience with me on that. Honestly,
0: it's it's happened to, to all of us at some point or the other, right? That that is a form <laughs> of working globally with other people from the other end of the world, which is pretty cool in itself, right?
1: That is pretty cool. Yes. So yes, I'm absolutely thrilled to be here.
0: Fabulous. All right. So for those of you, for those who don't know who you are and what you do, why don't you give us uh, an intro?
1: Sure. I currently I'm a researcher and an educator, kind of that combination. And uh, the area that my colleagues and I mainly work in is non-clinical uh, nutrition and exercise, sort of that integration. Sports nutrition, nutrition for um, improving body composition, and so uh, nutrition for improving athletic performance, typically in the the strength. And hypertrophy realm, and also um, fat loss. So that's my area of research interest. And, you know, as we get older, uh, the health question creeps in there, and, you know, that's kind of inevitable. But the way that I got into the field was 30 years ago, actually. And um, as far as the significance of my role in the field is, I'm one of the first people who brought the evidence-based model to the fitness space. So, evidence-based meaning uh, we take a research basis, or we we operate on referring to what is in the peer-reviewed literature um, when we make our claims, and um, we seek out what's what's true in in the media or in the field, and even just personally, and we kind of cross-check that with what we observe in the field, because the research literature, as good as it is, it's still incomplete, and there's still a lot of gray areas of knowledge. So in a nutshell, who I am, I'm one of the forefathers of the evidence-based movement in the fitness industry.
0: Happy to have you here again. All right. Let's talk about this beautiful creation of yours. Right? <laughs> and it's literally one of the most impactful nutrition books. And I, I it's, it's beyond nutrition. I know it's called flexible dieting, but the the title doesn't really sort of uh, share what this book is really about. Right. And I, And I'm I'm going to give you an idea of why I love it later on, but what I was curious about is why this book, why now, and what are you hoping to achieve by writing this book?
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. So I wish I had some sort of heroic story and, and some kind of noble answer to that question. (laughs) But okay, so here's here's the truth about the book. Yeah. My friend Brett Contreras gave me a call and said, okay, Alan, uh, I have friends at um, Victory Belt Publishing and they want you to write the book on flexible dieting. And I think you should do it. And I'm not going to take no for an answer. <laughs> and, and, I, and he he basically said, because, you know, Alan, if you don't write the flexible dieting book, one of your students in quotes, you know, one of your students out there is gonna write it. And that's not cool. That's not right. You know, yeah, everybody in the the current um fitness and nutrition space, all they do is repeat stuff that you have been saying and that you taught them, basically. Yeah. And so um, so you have to write it. You have to get the credit for that stuff. And <laughs> Like, dude, I ain't got time for that. <laughs> um, so I, 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 was happy to get the opportunity, and I decided, okay, I am going to take this opportunity to, um, okay, we can call the book flexible dieting that, and that's fine. But I just want to, since I'm going to write a book, I want to do an update of a book that I wrote in 2007. Which is called girth control. <laughs> and um it's basically everything that I feel that coaches need to know about um nutrition. You know, um just like the evidence-based nutrition book, basically is is what I wanted to write. And there's different avenues you can go in with nutrition. You can go clinical, different aspects of, of clinical nutrition. Um, but i was most interested in working with the general population recreational athletes and competitive athletes and sort of that that range you know the so- soccer moms and dads all the way to you know the the high level elite competitors yeah. and that that that's just my area of interest so that was the, that's how I wrote the book. And that's why I wrote the book is <laughs> because Brett called me and told me I really needed to do it. Otherwise one of my students or followers was going to write it and just repeat what I've been saying in their own way. And then not, not in my way.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it's received amazing feedback, right? Cause everywhere you see online and it's not just from the, the, the general pop is from people like us who've been in, in, in this industry for a while I mean when I started personal training and guiding people around their nutrition seven eight years ago my clients had amazing results as long as I was in front of them counting reps you know how that goes right they were in front of me and I was coaching them and I I was training them and they had they had incredible results but the moment they stopped working with me Alan they would revert back in their Always, they would stop training they would start making excuses for their eating and all of these things and that's when I got really curious about this whole concept of behavior change right? why why can some people stick with the journey even you know stick with the journey and continue to get results and why other people kind of give up and what we see in the space right now There's enough information, I feel like there's enough information around the what, what to eat, what exercises to do, and all of these things. But there isn't enough information around the how that soccer mom is thinking, right? I know I should eat vegetables, I know I should eat protein, I know I should focus on my sleep. But how do I do it when I'm raising four four little kids and running a home and all, doing all of these things, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's merging the what and the how is one of the reasons I really appreciate on here because you talk about behavior change, you talk about individualization and all of those things are super, super important. And how the book is written is for someone who's not in, in the field, it's really easy for them to understand right and implement the stuff on the book and for for professionals like myself who love a bit of geekiness there's enough of that in here as well <laughs> you know what I mean? I,
1: I've been told I've been told there's too much of that I, I've been told it's just too it's too research heavy like I just talk about research <laughs> the time. It,
0: but, but that's the point I mean people like us are supposed to kind of read that and then convey that information to our clients in a way that they can comprehend, in a way that they can implement, right? Um, Which is pretty cool. So my question is, where do you think behavior change falls on the hierarchy of importance for long-term health, long-term weight maintenance? How important do you reckon it is to work on changing overall behaviors, not just nutrition and fitness, by the way, everything, Mm -hmm. you know, stress management, sleep, being happy, you know, stuff like that. How important is that?
1: I think that is of utmost importance, Mm. utmost importance. I, 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 in fact, you know, you bring up sleep aside from, you know, um, Hydration, perhaps. (laughs) Sleep is, I mean, right there with the foundation of if that's not in place, then nothing is really going to to happen in terms of successfully changing the body or even maintaining good health. You know, if, if you're running a lack of sleep chronically, you're going to have dysregulated appetite, you're going to have low. Um, non exercise activity, you're going to have low exercise output, <laughs> low performance capacity. Um, and uh, those things are all going to go, co- you're going to have low mental capacity, low cognitive capacity. And so, all of those things combine to uh, setting yourself up to fail. And so, um, even with something as as seemingly uh, elementary as sleep, or simple as sleep, or even trivial. You know, sleep. We we'll get to that. You know, we can just run on four or five hours a night, like some people do. It's extremely important to to get that in and um, behavior change, habit change. It's it's crucial. It is absolutely crucial. And um, you can have the the most perfect program. You can hand somebody the most perfect menu. You know and training program and say, okay, this is what you do. But if the person doesn't have a background on why it's set up the way it is, uh, if they don't have just a very basic education of, okay, what's the objective here? To eat fewer calories by the end of the week. Okay, that's the objective. So therefore, if you run into certain compromising situations then you know how to essentially um, compensate for it and steer right back onto the road and keep going. Um, And so you have to know what the objective is, what you're doing. So that involves a bit of education. And then you have to have the right tools in the tool belt in terms of um, responding to difficult circumstances in the environment. And so those things take practice And that's kind of the essence of of building these habits that enable you to succeed. And it's difficult to to learn and it's difficult to teach. And that's why we have a lot of conversations about it like this one.
0: Yeah, and absolutely. And and those conversations kind of need to continue, right? Because what I find is a lot of people focus on changing their nutrition and their exercise and all of these things. And then- Life happens as it usually does. (laughs) Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: A kid is gonna get sick, something's gonna happen at work. And then if their coping mechanism is emotional eating, then they're going back to those high calorie, high energy dense foods, right? So super important. That's right. We're working on the what to eat through that understanding of nutrition. We also need to kind of work on, hey, the how. How can we Mm -hmm. make journey? um how can we design it in a way that you can actually sustain even when life is happening right
1: yeah and and in addition to that yusra we also have to have realistic expectations of progress yeah. as well as realistic end goals so you know with um with the 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 UFC having just uh, aired John Jones's return and all, all of that good stuff, you look at the the athletes and and these are these are people that the general public aspires to look like. They set their goals around these elite professional athletes without keeping in mind that at that level, all these guys do is eat, sleep, and train. that's all they do. And so um, when you set goals to look like a certain type of individual, you have to keep in mind, well, what's, what's their lifestyle, what's their environment like, and what are the challenges uh, in their, in their schedule. And with populations like middle-aged parents, they have multiple things they're juggling and they have uh, very limited opportunities to uh, actually train, and they have m- many, many more distractions, dietarily and everything else-wise. So, so socially, um, uh, and it's it's a it's a very difficult thing. Yeah. it's really difficult. It's a colossal uh, challenge to change the body as a middle-aged parent, particularly. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so. Absolutely. So. Let's talk about this. Say you have you have a mom or a dad who's who has a busy life and a busy schedule and all of these things and and they're like, Alan, I am 70 pounds overweight. I need your help. I want to to lose weight. Where do you start with them?
1: Okay. Um okay, so the one thing that you cannot control or or have any have much, much say in is, is the person's determination level, their motivation level, their, um, their fundamental trigger of what made them turn the corner and decide I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, so the times that it is successful, uh, it, that it, a common, a common trigger for successful, uh, substantial weight change. Is when somebody feels a, a so almost like a catastrophic uh, level of um, threat to their health. And so if a doctor tells somebody, hey, um, you're not going to see your daughter graduate uh, middle, uh, middle school <laughs> or high school uh, unless you get it together, then some people will go, oh, okay, I better make some changes. Um, some people will, get a divorce and <laughs> some sort of major life change that really triggers uh some massive shifts in in the way that that people feel about their their place in in their life so it's those kind of things that you can't control you know <clears throat> on the other end of the spectrum somebody will watch a a a marvel movie and and admire the uh <laughs> the physique of the protagonist and then they say hey i want to lose 70 pounds let's do this that you know you can't control whether it's that reason or some sort of uh, other profound reason that might have more of a foothold in their adherence to what's going on so you have to realize as the, as a practitioner mm-hmm. you have limited control over just how bad the the person wants it um when, when, uh, when I started doing coaching, uh, nutritional coaching and personal training and, um, way, way, way back, I used to, I had it in my mind that I can help everybody, everybody like, a, a, and so the very first time that I could not help someone, no matter how hard I tried, no matter how good the programming was, no matter how frequent the check-ins and the follow-ups, no matter how close the monitoring I felt like I failed, but it's, you know, <laughs> later on, you realize, you know what, if you can help most people, yeah, and there's a few that you can't help, that's, you're still doing a good job. And so, okay, so that's the beginning. That is that massive trigger there, is that massive um, kind of a seismic shift in the person's perception and intentions and their their, the way that they view themselves at their place in life, they want to be at a different place in life. Yeah. Okay, so that needs to be there. Um, and then, but that's outside of your control. But what is in your control is conveying to somebody a realistic rate of loss. So let's take the, the number that you presented, 70 pounds. That's a substantial amount of weight. And so the benchmark of a pound loss per week as cliche as it is, and as boring as it is, and as maybe uninspiring as it is, it's actually, it's actually quite good. I mean, it, it's right there. It's right in the ballpark of what people can achieve without um, putting everything in their life on hold. So yeah, you know what? If, if this person sets a 70-week goal, and if they want to be ambitious okay let's set a 52 week goal let's let's set aside a year of your life mm. to lose the 70 pounds mm. and knowing that hey it might take 70 weeks I and mean, you know this this might take a year and a half but we'll shoot for a year and as long as they have that realistic expectation from the outset um they won't run into the problems of thinking they're going to lose 2 or 3 pounds a week for 6 months and then, um, you know, then we're going to, all all they have to do is just, uh, you know, like, or rather, if they're not losing two to three pounds a week, what's going to happen is they're going to feel like the program is failing. They'll think, oh gosh, I'm only losing a pound a week. There's got to be a quicker way to do this. Hmm, what other, what other diet is out there? What can I look at? What other program is out there? Maybe this doctor has a particular program I can do to get rid of these 70 pounds in like three months, you know? So step number one, set realistic expectations. And, um, I sometimes say one to two pounds a week, Mm. but I, I would rather say a pound a week because if something averages out to work at a pound a week, that's really, really quite fast and it's good enough for sure. So set the realistic, realistic expectations. Okay. So once that is done and the person genuinely believes and and genuinely is on board with the idea of hitting their 70 pound loss in, um, one to one and a half years, Mm. then you've, then you've honestly, you've won a large part of the battle because then you can just teach them how to do it. Yeah. So, Yeah.
0: I love that. What I find from some of the women I work with, right, it's almost like I know I want to lose weight, X amount of weight, but for the moment, I'm going to forget about that number, right, and I'm just going to focus on the process every single day. What can I do today? And what that does is it it almost – Changes how they feel about the journey because even if the loss didn't happen that week, it's like, I'm good. I ate my vegetables this week. I ate my protein. I exercise, and that's all good. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's almost yeah. like it almost takes the pressure off the, you know, hitting the scale, hitting that one pound loss every week to just enjoying the process and, uh, you know, enjoying what else they're achieving that is not necessarily. A tangible number, you know?
1: I agree. I, I totally agree with that. And, you know, there's there's some good research backing an approach that doesn't focus on, on the weight at all. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a two-year study by Clark where the subjects lost 30% of their body weight by the end of um, the two-year period, which is a tremendous amount of weight. And uh, they, instead of focusing on body weight change, they focused on improvements in exercise performance. Mm-hmm. Um, they were put on a diet, on a specific diet. The diet was high, high-ish protein, 1.5 grams per kilogram of body weight. And they had a limit of hundred grams of carbs. Um, and that was the extent <laughs> of the diet. Um, and it happened to, you know, it, it worked well for them to not think about scale weight yeah. Um I I tend to I I want to make sure that people have the time frame right.
0: Yeah. Um
1: at the at the beginning like hey this is this is going to take a good year of grinding this through. And um focusing on on the weight um every day or every week is not is not typically necessary and I like the way that you mentioned that hey just getting involved with the process um acknowledging those those small victories daily that you are building those habits i mean just that is good enough because you know frankly it, what really matters is 10 20 years down the road not not you know not necessarily uh even like next year okay next year is a start mm-hmm. but the issue is anybody can actually lose the weight it's just part that involves the building of habits and the building of skills yeah. and uh, the changing of uh, uh, of mindset. And yeah. so that's the difficult part is keeping it on.
0: Yeah. And then obviously that's what's going to help people maintain that loss in the long,
1: mm-hmm.
0: long right? Um, okay. So let's talk about a battle that a lot of us in the, in the evidence space are kind of battling right now and this is the sea of misinformation out there <laughs> right yeah and it feels like it, it feels like anyone can say anything about uh, a mechanistic process involving human physiology and people just buy into it there's a loss of domain expertise almost do you know what i mean why do yeah. you think this is happening? Why do you think there's so much misinformation out there?
1: I think it it comes down to I think it comes down to a, a, a handful of things. So so first of all, um, the complexity of the body and the the genuine complexity of of nutrition hmm. um, that leaves a lot of room for Different interpretations of of uh, what's true and what's false. and um the world of science and research is 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 complex, you know, and so and the body is complex. and and so therefore, there's a a lot of different experiences that will be conflicting um in the space and and different observations. And people bring those observations with them and they um emotionally attached to what what tribe that they they like what tribe they identify with mm-hmm. and then uh you know there's always that that social aspect of okay uh this is against my my tribe so i got to defend my i got to defend my tribe and and represent properly here and, and and go to battle with this other tribe you know and so it's an odd thing about human human nature socially psychologically that that we have uh, and that antagonizes the process of science literacy and scientific thinking. Um, so, okay, so the 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 body is complex, nutrition is complex, people are are tribal uh, and so, social animals, and um, everybody eats. So, so therefore, people feel they have some sort of dominion over over what what to tell people. In terms of what nutrition is all about, because if you you're in good shape and you're in good health, y- you will have a tendency to uh, um, teach and preach <laughs> what you're doing, the details of what you're doing, yes. and and how and how everybody everybody else should be doing if if they want to achieve the 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 level of, of fitness that that and the, the level of health that I've got, et cetera. And so. Um, it's really different with the field of nutrition because it's not like in law, for example, where everybody lawyers, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like the field of engineering um, where uh, everybody engineers. It's, it's, everybody engineers, but the thing is with nutrition, everybody eats, yeah. And, and yeah, and that that's where the the issues start start creeping in um it it's almost as if if a a couple had a great marriage mm. and they said you know what we we're experts in we're we're experts in marriage so therefore we we're going to we're going we're gonna to be marriage counselors because we have a great marriage mm. Um, You know, just because you happen to get everything right for yourself doesn't mean th- that that's an objective truth universally, you know. Um, Sure, there may be some insights that this happily married couple might have yeah. that people can use, but it's the universal directives that uh, are pushed out that really can confuse people, just like people who have um succeeded on for example a real common example keto like somebody who's lost 50 pounds on keto will have a tendency to say you know i tried everything but finally i decided to just cut the carbs and go keto and that was the only worked amazingly and i've been doing it for five years and i've kept the weight off therefore everybody should go keto
0: absolutely yeah
1: that's the that's the human tendency. And and so um so yeah, the complexity of the body, everybody eats. And then finally, scientific literacy um, or science literacy. And and let me know if if I cut out because I got a little indication here that my connection was a little
0: yeah. shaky. It's, it's a bit so, shaky, but we're good. We're good.
1: Okay. Yeah, just let me know when you want me to repeat anything.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: So yeah, that science literacy is, is scarce amongst the general public. Mm -hmm. So um, that whole phrase, you know, you just got to do your research, do your own research or uh, yeah, I did my research Uh, that, that is a, that's, that's a minefield Mm -hmm. because um, if you ask the average person on the street about the concept of scientific evidence. So if you ask somebody, what constitutes strong scientific evidence and what would you call weak scientific evidence or just weak evidence period? What is strong evidence and weak evidence? What? How would you describe that? Mm-hmm. You would be looking at a deer in the headlights with the average person. And that is honestly, yeah. What you would get if you ask somebody um, who who feels like they did their research on a particular question, what they did was they did their own googling, and of course <laughs> Google Google designs its algorithm to the individual and what they tend to Google, and yeah. so their search results are just going to be based on what's most relevant to you know the shopping or the browsing that that person normally does, <laughs> and so. Um, it is a minefield, and the the general public does lack science literacy. Um, most people they most people uh, they don't know the difference between strong evidence and weak evidence, let alone the difference between a well done study versus a poorly done, slash poorly designed study for answering the given question. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, the the rabbit hole keeps going in that direction. But the bottom line is, most people are scientifically illiterate. And that's why there's so many, um, there's so much confusion and so many conflicts going on in the world of nutrition. It's that complexity. It's the fact that everybody eats. And the fact that scientific literacy is very scarce amongst the general public and even um, the professionals in the space. Mm. They, they struggle with um, basic scientific literacy because it's not taught everywhere.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also the perceived credibility and authority of the person talking, right? Because if someone, oh, someone yeah. who's a doctor even if not in the nutrition space, but he's a doctor, he told me to do this, so it must be correct because they're a doctor. And that just fuels the fire because it's, you know, it just makes things a lot harder than someone like me, who's doing her best to share evidence-based information. Now I have to fight against a doctor almost. And they're like, yeah, Mm -hmm. but he's a doctor, you're not. Do you know what I mean? So that perceived, credibility is such an issue where people don't understand the concept the concept of scope of practice right yes
1: oh absolutely yes yes and the whole point of having a a certain level of scientific literacy Mm. is so you can discern uh between the the high quality information Mm. and the crappy information regardless of who is dishing it out. Yeah. And unfortunately the the best selling diet books the majority of them are written by physicians by by doctors. And uh my hypothesis <laughs> on why that's true is because doctors are just very natively intelligent people they're innately intelligent people and um along with that high native intelligence comes a a certain uh, extraordinary degree of uh, and, and confidence Mm. and presumption that, that you're correct. Yeah. And that's those naturally would go hand in hand that that's a thing with, with brilliant people. They think they're brilliant in every department. And so if they dabble in nutrition, oh heck, I'm an authority in nutrition because I'm brilliant, you know? (laughs) So that's really that's really an issue. and I'm glad that you brought up that that issue because people just trust doctors on on face value, yeah, when they shouldn't
0: they do. they do. So if someone was getting their nutrition information from s- social media, let's say what what kind of red flags should they keep an eye on? You know,
1: yes, okay. Any, anytime somebody conveys a message of um, absolute nature, mm. so saying you should never have these foods or, or a dichotomously uh, put claim, like these foods are bad, like uh, avoid this. And these foods are really good. These are the super foods that are going to get you to fantastic health. You've got to seek out this food. And so, um, anytime things are put in absolute terms like that, and uh, another red flag is when somebody doesn't um, present the strengths and and, and limitations of a, of a given claim or or a given study or uh, a given concept. You know, there there's always going to be limitations and and weaknesses to it. And, that should be presented as well. So you can make your judgment about the pros and cons of, of the, the protocol and how it might apply to you or how it might not. Um, and then uh, another big red flag is if there's no supporting evidence for the claim that's made, if there's no evidence provided. And, and certainly when you ask for evidence, so you hear this claim, you feel like it's a bold claim, and then you say, "Okay, that's interesting. Now, can you link me to the study or the evidence that this is true?" And so, if the person is unwilling to do that, then that's your cue that, well, this is a this is a problem. Um, and and so, a lot of times, people will make claims without wanting to present the evidence, and that that should tell you that this is a little bit fishy.
0: Or or they're going to t- t- tell you to go do your own research.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, if you want to engage with somebody mm. in discussion about their, their miracle diet or their miracle protocol or their special two minutes a week exercise program that's going to get you to your goals if you want to engage dialogue with them and they're on social media and it's almost their job to engage (laughs) and they don't, or they won't. That's another red flag.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, given how accessible information is, it's almost like people have to have this awareness and build the capacity and ability to ask questions and think critically right you you can't go on social media and believe everything everything that you read and expect it to be true it's going to leave you anxious and feeling like oh my god being healthy is so hard because that's what a a lot of people think if i want to be healthy i have to cut out all these things so no forget Mm -hmm. that i'm just gonna stay here and not do anything about it right
1: yes Yes, absolutely, mm. and yeah, th- those kind of absolutes, those kind of uh, a lack of uh, margin uh, of see a lot of times with with any given thing like w- we can take added sugars for example.
0: Mm-mm.
1: There, there's a lack of nuance in the conversation about added sugars. People just think sugar is bad or sugar is good. Yeah. Well. Okay, it's a matter of what kind of sugar, what source and how much of the diet does it take up. So all of those things have to be discussed in order to provide context. Mm -hmm. And so um, when we discuss any sort of concept, we have to set up the context (laughs) just like with, um, well, we'll take the sugar thing for example. Uh, I had a knockdown drag out debate with um and I don't remember whether, whether it was on sugar or not but uh, there there's a dude named Dr. Nicole Antonio mm. and and he uh, he's said some stuff that's controversial and some stuff that uh, really gets the the science based community really rustled up and, and, and just upset.
0: <laughs> That's been happening but, a lot lately, hasn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it has. It has. <laughs> and um I I did a post one time and he came in there and he I mean he engaged with me for thousands of words. I mean like we, we just went back and forth. But the thing is like I appreciate when people come in that if they have a um you know if they oppose what's being said and they want to present a counter argument and they want a dialogue. And and I'm all, all say, for that.
0: I have to say that I really admire that you can do that. The 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 patience that you have, Alan, is <laughs> insane. And I'm like, how is he so calm? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well that's the you know <laughs> that's the thing. It's like unfortunately during these things I see folks engage and then they do get emotional and they say some insulting things and then they end up getting blocked by, you know, and, and it's like, I, I, as much as I disagree with, with Dr. Nicol Antonio on certain issues, uh, I appreciate that he came in there and he, He tried to present his argument in detail, presenting evidence and all of that. And I don't always have time to get into long knockdown, drag out um, uh, social media debates. But I think it's important to do that once in a while. And the only way that it can be done is if uh, both sides approach the debate in good faith (laughs) and and I think it's possible for good things to come out of that like once in a while um but yeah okay context and and the the sugar thing it's like it's one thing for somebody to claim that sugar is bad we need to avoid it or bread is bad and we need to avoid it all right first of all there's there's no evidence for that um secondly Uh, As far as the evidence is concerned, it it appears that we can have a low amount of added sugar in the diet and still have a high quality diet. As far as uh, let's say bread is concerned, Um, there's research examining the presence or absence of bread in in a hypocaloric setup and whether or not people could adhere and bread actually helped with adherence. Uh, and and resulted in better diet outcomes. Uh, and so uh, there's there's context to to everything. When people make these absolute claims, then you have to ask, okay, what's the context and what dose are we talking about here? Mm. And even this can even extend to the protein, the protein debate, the protein argument. It's like, there's this question that's put forth so over simplistically, like is high protein bad or is high protein good? Okay, well, what dose are we talking about? Yeah. Um, what population are we talking about? And what goal are we talking about? And so whenever we talk about goals, there's levels to different goals. I mean, are we looking at Olympic gold versus silver? Or are we looking at you know, showing up at the, uh, the beach and, and feeling okay without a shirt or, you know what I mean? (laughs) It's like, there's different, different goals and different levels. And so, um, with anything, with any claim, like the protein claim, again, for example, we have to ask what's the goal, what's the population that we're talking about
0: Mm. and you
1: know, what, what's at stake here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So they miss out the, 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 context, the dosage, and the individual in front of them potentially, right?
1: Yeah, That's right. That's right. When absolute claims are spit out, the nuance is lost, context is lost. And that's the only way you can have a productive um, conversation. That's the only way you can really progress if you have a, a pulse on what is the, what is the context here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Let's jump on a topic that I know is one of your favorites and how and that is how to age strong right
1: okay Um, yes
0: (laughs) can i just say your father and mother-in-law are absolutely incredible and oh thank you i'm following their journey on social media and what's even more interesting to to me alan is the age that they started like your father in law was was 81 i think when he started 80 Eight eighty, yeah.
1: I think he was eighty, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And now he's eighty-one. Yeah. Um, what started that off? What made them say, you know what? Let's strength train now.
1: Oh man, it was my wife who said, "Hey, come on over here. Let's let's start. Let's start training. Let's start your resistance training," because uh, it was just really um, kind of sad to see to see them just languishing, convalescing, not moving. Um, it's just kind of, it's one of those things where, you know, with age people, people just slow down. They, they literally slow down. they uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. Every, everything just sort of, people just kind of prepare to make that walk towards the end of their lives. Mm. And it's more like a glide towards the end of their lives because they ain't walking at all. Mm. Um, so it was really my wife, Jenna, who said, you know what? I don't want to hear you complain about your chronic pain anymore. I don't want to see you walking around like an old person anymore. Mm. So uh, I have the knowledge. Let's let's get to training because my, my wife, um she has a, a lot of experience with personal training. And in fact, she had done full-time personal training. She was personal trainer of the year of um, this large health club chain in Southern California. And so she's really good at at training. And there was no reason why she of all people couldn't help her parents. And so that was how they got on it is is Jenna said, okay, we're going to start this. (laughs) That's awesome.
0: And the the results that even at that age that you can actually achieve, right? Because yeah,
1: it, yeah. Because mm-hmm. you see
0: a lot of people having this mentality, oh, I'm 60 now, it's too late to start, or I'm 70 now. But there's <laughs> an amazing 80-year-old who's literally smashing it right now. Like, you know?
1: It's, it's truly incredible because he went from doing nothing. I mean, I'm talking the, the, the most activity he had was just, going out into the yard and maybe clipping some uh, leaves and some branches and stuff and uh, just going back into the house and sitting down and watching TV. Mm-hmm. Um, so and this is the same with with uh, my mother-in-law, We're both just very, very sedentary people. Um, it's, you know, it's incredible how muscle at any age, even the oldest old uh, 85 year olds and, and, and up 80 year olds and up muscle is very responsive to stress, to the exercise stimulus, to the training stimulus. It will adapt at any age. It can rejuvenate at any point. It's, it's literally never too late unless you're dead. <laughs> muscle will adapt muscle will rejuvenate, which is really, really cool. And it's really wonderful to see those um, that progress and that, that mm-hmm. youth come back. And it makes you kind of wonder, wow, how many years did we just add to these people's lives? Mm-hmm. And, and not just life extension, not just lifespan extension because statistically everybody has about 80 years statistically mm. on average mm. there will be people of course who cross into the triple triple digits but they're a small handful um but you know, on average we have we have about 80 years and people like you and me who got on the fitness thing shoot man we got about buck 50 we have about 150 <laughs> years just <you
0: know? laughs> <laughs> <That's standard. laughs> Yeah, it's
1: uh... but yeah go on the average person has has Mm -hmm. 80 years so the plan the game plan Mm -hmm. is instead of the typical person in the general population who from age 50 to 80 is absolutely miserable you have 30 years of disability and disease the game plan is to make that 30 years vigorous and functional mm-hmm. and similar to your capacity physically and mentally that you had in, in young adulthood. Yeah. Who knows, even in childhood, you know, that same spark and the same vigor and the same level of energy. Mm-hmm. That's the game plan. And of course, people who are doing that throughout their lives. And certainly throughout adulthood, we'll have an edge on people who started very, very late, um, but they, they still would be able to drastically improve the quality of, of their later years. And that's the game plan.
0: That's amazing. Are there any sort, apart from the training, are there any sort of n- n- nutritional changes that had to happen as well to, to supplement that training?
1: increase protein
0: mm.
1: increase your freaking protein. all of this talk about protein restriction for longevity that's really a bunch of crap. Uh, it's a bunch of uh, it's a bunch of data that's based on um, flies and um, fruit flies, worms, uh, single cell organisms, yeast and uh, rodents and it just doesn't apply to humans. Uh, People are focused on the mTOR pathway and IGF-1 and um, how those might uh, shorten lifespan. And I'll tell you what shortens lifespan is a loss of strength and size in muscle. That's what will uh, lead to immobility. Sarcopenia, age-related muscle loss. And... Frailty in general. Mm. So, frailty would include sarcopenia. Um, frailty would include bone loss and also uh, strength loss. So, it's those things that compromise functional capacity. So, the minute somebody becomes less mobile and graduates towards being more or less immobile, mm-hmm. that's when the beginning of the end is. And so um, longevity, when you look at it from a muscle or a musculoskeletal centric perspective, that is the most practical way to approach longevity because the musculoskeletal system will drive the cardiovascular system if it's functional. And so that's the way things should be working in tandem. And uh, people miss that. People miss that. If you don't support muscle strength and mass, you're missing the whole point. Low-balling protein does not optimize muscle strength and mass, and this is something that is at imminent threat levels as you get older.
0: Yeah. I don't pay attention to my macros, not carbohydrates and fat, but protein, protein I pay attention to, right? Yeah. Just, just yeah. making sure I hit that number, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so in short, what we're saying, if, if, if you want to to, to, to age strong, make sure you're hitting your protein, right. And your resistance training, right?
1: Those are two very fundamental, crucial things. Yes. Yes, okay. definitely.
0: Yeah. In terms of sarcopenia, have we seen, um, whether women have higher incidences of sarcopenia than men? Do we have that, that research?
1: That's that's a really good question. And, and I haven't looked into that, Yusra. Um, What is clear is that women have a far greater prevalence of osteoporosis. So 80% of the osteoporosis cases are women. Mm. Um, But sarcopenia, I think it's pretty similar. That would be my guess.
0: Yeah. Would that be because of the the change in estrogen from premenopause and things like this? Yeah.
1: Yes, that's right. That's right.
0: Which means we have to work even harder, Alan. Can't have that. Which means we, we have to train even harder and train even harder and eat even more protein, right?
1: Keep the training going. Um, keep good nutrition in place. Uh, cover your, cover your macro and micronutrition needs, and and um, you know the 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 whole thing uh, about then there's a stigma attached to resistance training, where people are picturing these really muscular, strong, intimidating people in the gym, throwing around barbells and dumbbells and stuff. And a lot of people are intimidated and turned off by that. But resistance training can, it can be something as simple as being able to do some knee push-ups, you know, <laughs> being able to do some, some body weight squats, or just, you know, some goblet squats with holding a dumbbell to the chest. Um, and it doesn't have to be these intimidating type of things where you imagine somebody doing a one rep max with 600 pounds on a deadlift type of thing. So yeah, yeah if, you, if people can get past that stigma, then everybody can do it.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I think the conversation is changing in the right direction, right? A lot more, a lot more women are open to lifting weights now, you know, t- doing a bit more than body weight uh, squats and stuff like that, which is p- pretty cool to see, right?
1: It is, it, it is great. It is great to see. And, um, you know, you bring up the, the footage of my, my parents-in-law, um, it really did inspire a lot of people. And uh, I think, uh, you know, a few of those posts that that my wife put up, they're in the 2 million view mark. I, I shared them.
0: I, I definitely yeah. shared
1: them. <laughs> Good. Good. It's like 2 to 3 million views is, is what a few of those posts are. And it's really remarkable that the, the general audience is ready for this kind of Kind of thing, you know. They're ready to hear that. Hey, you really can start training at seventy or eighty, and you really can start getting in shape and and um and definitely reversing uh, reversing the clock. So, um, it would be nice to to think that we can reverse the clock indefinitely, but um, it is nice to know that we definitely can improve health span and quality of life well well into our very, very old years.
0: Absolutely, absolutely agree. Well Alan, I have a few more questions here, but I'm being
1: careful. Let's, let's go. Are no, you sure? I'm, I'm ready. Oh yeah, thank All right. So All
0: right. let's talk about-
1: I, I owe you. I owe you my arm and my leg.
0: <laughs> thank you, Alan. <laughs> let's talk about meal and Macronutrient timing because this whole story around don't eat carbohydrates after six is it seems to be a myth that doesn't want to die, right? So does is meal timing is focusing on meal timing important for health, first of all. Two, is it important for weight loss? Because I know the two are not the same, right? Mm
1: -hmm. That's right, that's right. So Let's talk about the health thing for a second. Mm -hmm. At the general population level, mm, the majority of, uh, in quotes, problem eating happens close to bedtime. So after dinner. Mm -hmm. So if you were to just give somebody a simple recommendation or a simple order, (laughs) don't eat after dinner. (laughs) Just don't eat anything after dinner. And they, if they follow through with it, then they will have a tendency to, by the end of the day, end of the week, eat significantly less calories and then lose weight. Okay, so that's fine and dandy, but it's not necessarily a long-term solution. But it is it is something that has worked in research where you um, assign a cutoff point in the evening, let's say 7 pm. That's the last time you can eat something, mm. and in the subjects that that's that was the only um, assignment. Mm. There was no tracking, no uh, you know, no accounting for macronutrition or calories or anything like that. Just stop eating at X time in the evening, early evening. Yeah. They lost weight, and so therefore, um, when somebody says nighttime eating is a problem for you know weight gain and whatnot, it, it's not necessarily false. I mean there there's data behind that. And so now here's the problem making the leap that you need that you need to not eat at night or you need to front load your calories. Ev- that everybody needs to do that. that that's when you start encountering um, counter evidence that really challenges that 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 sort of idea. And okay, so so we started off at the very basic level of nighttime eating, mindless eating at night, being an issue for the general public. Okay, so now we're going to move to the area of, all right, so what if somebody was aware of their nutritional needs, macronutrition, calories, mm-hmm. and they did have that target? Does it matter um, the timing of the meals or the timing of the constituent doses of that macronutrient setup for the day Does it matter when they consume it from a health standpoint? Mm. The short answer is no. Mm. But this is how it does matter. It matters to the extent that you set it up so that the person can adhere to that setup in the long term. That's how it matters. And that's how it matters individually, because some people will be much more of a early shifted type, mm-hmm. chronotype. They have that preference to yeah. consume most of their calories in the early part of the day. Okay, great. You do that. Why? Because that's what you'll be able to stick to in the long term. Mm-hmm. And some people will have a preference for late shifted or backloaded, as it were, um, eating yeah. where they their largest meal is dinner you'll hear people say no no don't do that because of x y and z study and we'll get to that but that's nonsense <laughs> if that person prefers to have let's say for example their largest meal at dinner or the majority of their carbs at dinner great that's you you stick you do that why because you prefer that and you can stick to it in the long term so in the hierarchy of importance is what you eat in total food selection, food quality wise, and macronutrition wise and everything by the end of the day in total, that's priority number one for what matters in terms of, of health. A very distant secondary concern and a trivial concern is how the timing of the constituent doses of those calories and macronutrients are distributed throughout the day. And the only, once again, the main way it does matter is to the extent that the individual prefers that setup and can adhere to it in the long term so um now there is a body of research that points to the health superiority of earlier feeding models, of earlier shifted feeding models than later shifted feeding models. There is a body of literature pointing to that with specific regard to um, blood glucose control. So so insulin sensitivity and glucose control, which may be a concern for, for example, pre-diabetics, type 2 diabetics, etc. Okay. So there are some indicators of better glucose control in the groups that eight from let, let's say an 8-hour feeding window at the earlier part of the day versus mm-hmm. either a feeding window that occurred later in the day or a longer feeding window like a 12-hour feeding window mm-hmm. there is that research showing better glucose control now here's the big but okay but this is a relatively short-term phenomenon and it's mainly relegated to people who do not train so in sedentary conditions because the exercise the exercise bout is the single most profound physiological event in your day and so that changes everything um but even before we get to that i want to say i want to repeat that the glucose control advantage of the early shifted eating models is a short-term phenomenon because we now have a 12-month study by Liu and colleagues, LIU and colleagues. Um, This was just done in either 2021 or 2022, I'm not remembering, Um, but they compared an early time-restricted feeding model, which was doing really well in the short-term research, so um, eating from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. with a conventional Control uh, condition where the subjects ate from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Same amount of calories, roughly 15 ish hundred calories, a moderate caloric deficit. So they ran that for 12 months. There were no significant differences between groups in body composition improvement, mm. no significant difference between groups in improvements in blood glucose and blood lipids and these cardiometabolic indexes. And so They ran that for the long term, and (laughs) by the end of the rainbow, uh, it turns out that, wow, there's nothing exciting to be had from a particular feeding distribution. They both made progress. They both improved health indexes. And so while that is anticlimactic from the standpoint of trying to find something novel and exciting, it is a welcome finding from the standpoint of individualizing programs. And that's something that coaches need to do. And so, uh, so yeah, that's my long answer to your question about um, meal timing or uh, food, diet distribution and intake distribution through the day and health.
0: Yeah. And I love
1: that.
0: Yeah. I actually had a question to ask. Is there a specific set of Population that we should be mindful of, and you answered my question to say actually we have this study. Yes, so <laughs> it.
1: It really <laughs> make a difference. Yes, yeah, that's right. And we also have a six month study comparing carbohydrate distribution, and this is by sofer and colleagues. S O F E R, and this is a 2011 study where they looked at carbohydrate that was consumed evenly across breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and they compared it with a condition where all the carbs for the day were slammed into the dinner meal. So you have this big honking meal at dinner, and they ran moderate hypocaloric conditions and and compared what happened. Interestingly, it was the, the group that ate all their carbs at dinner who actually had significantly better fat loss than the, the group that distributed their carbs evenly across um, the span of the day. And this kind of goes against the, the entire narrative of uh, mm-hmm. early shifted feeding or time early time-restricted feeding, and especially with respect to carbohydrate. Uh, and the authors were kind of perplexed as to how that could have happened. Um, they They examined the hormonal profiles of the subjects and, and concluded that, well, maybe there's a more favorable, um, appearance curve of, of adiponectin in the back loaded carbohydrate group. So, um, but even with something like that, I wouldn't conclude that everybody needs to shove their, their carbohydrates in the dinner meal for optimal fat loss, because, Ultimately, these, these small differences are going to wash out. Mm. Um, and what ultimately matters is what the individual can stick to. And people will vary in their their personal preferences for this.
0: Absolutely. My preference has, has always been to have my carbs at night. So that's when I'll have my fruits and everything else is after dinner. And my dinner is the heaviest meal purely because during the day, I'm handling the children. I've got so much to do that time when I'm having my dinner is when I'm relaxed. And, you know, and I find a lot of my clients who are moms prefer that as well, purely because they're super hectic in the day. They're busy in the day. They haven't got time to just sit down and have a a big meal. So they choose to have smaller meals in the day. And then at night is when they can really enjoy a biggish meal. So.
1: And that's really common. That's really common. But People have heard so many times that you have to eat breakfast like uh, a king and lunch like a Lord knows what, and then eat dinner like a pauper. And it's like, okay, so people are picturing this big old breakfast and this this moderate sized lunch and this teeny tiny dinner that they have to eat in order to succeed. And then they're kind of miserable. In my observations, uh, people are so relieved to know that, hey, it's okay for... The final meal to be the biggest meal and hey it's okay to have carbs after 6 p.m and heck it's totally okay to have to eat something within two hours of bedtime <laughs> because what matters is the big picture not the distribution of the intake through the course of the day that's the body doesn't operate on this you know that that level of of uh of granularity as far as the diet goes now for performance, for athletic performance, um, for building muscle, there's there's different rabbit holes that, that can be discussed with respect to timing and distribution of nutrients. Um, whether the goal is to increase endurance performance, there are different guidelines for that, where timing does matter, depending on the length of the bout, um, and with muscle gain, there are uh, guidelines that can be discussed, depending on really on on what's at stake. And um, yeah, so so those are that's that's a different area, and and we can talk about whatever whatever you think is interesting. Yeah.
0: Let's talk about fasting because Ramadan is coming up, Alan, in a couple of weeks, <laughs> and okay. I'm excited about it, but I'm also nervous because I don't do very well without my tea in the morning. <laughs> And the fast is between, I think this time around is between 16 and to 18 hours of nothingness, right? Um. So yeah, yeah. one of the most common stories that I hear is, hey, I've been intermittent fasting and because of that, I have either reversed my pre-diabetes because of it, because fasting is incredible thing. And my question is usually, is it the act of fasting or the fact that you have lost weight and is the weight loss that kind of enhanced your cardiometabolic health and stuff like that? So I guess my question is, are, 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 there, are, are there any unique cardiometabolic advantages to fasting beyond fat loss, beyond weight loss?
1: The short answer is no. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's going to disappoint a lot of people. But um, the benefits of fasting, trying to separate um, inherent benefits of fasting from fasting's capability to enable weight loss and fasting's capability to antagonize overeating overall by the end of the day, by the end of the week, you can't separate that. (laughs) <laughs> you just can't yeah. i mean you can't separate it in terms of uh the parameters that are measurable uh yeah. there are certain parameters that people speculate about like autophagy for example yeah but um and it it's a it's kind of a non starter because autophagy occurs in a state of hypocaloric balance and and dieting conditions, regardless of whether the dieting is non-linear, like an intermittent fasting type of model or intermittent energy restriction model, Mm. or whether it's daily caloric restriction, autophagy increases. Um, Autophagy, for for those unaware, it's a, a process where the body gets rid of damaged cellular components and these uh, damaged uh, cellular components that can potentially impede the function of the cell and are associated with not aging well and also disease states and the like. So autophagy has become this buzzword where people feel that, okay, we gotta maximize autophagy. So, okay, well, if you want to actually maximize the, the progression of autophagy and where it leads, then you would just stop eating indefinitely and then allow autophagy to cross over into autosis, which is runaway cell death and then the dying process. So more is not necessarily better (laughs) when it comes to autophagy and chasing autophagy with fasting Mm, Um, that can be a a double-edged sword because when, when people fast, um, you always put your lean body mass at risk, depending on the, the severity of the fast, the length of the fast. Mm -hmm. So typically with time restricted feeding, that's not an issue, Mm -hmm. but with people who are fasting for entire days or certainly consecutive days you might be chasing autophagy, but you're doing it at the expense of retaining lean body mass, specifically muscle tissue. Mm. And that can be a bad thing ultimately. Um, so getting back to your question, Yusra, about special or inherent health benefits of fasting beyond the reduction of body fat levels. I I hate to say it, man, because and it does... It is going to disappoint people mm-hmm. who are big fans of the, in quotes, magic of fasting. But if one person decides to intermittently fast mm-hmm. and the next person decides to daily caloric restrict, both individuals maintain a healthy body composition in terms of muscularity and leanness and maintain a healthy physical activity level and both of their diets consist of a predominance of healthy foods, they're both going to live the the same um, length and quality of life. There's just no magic to the intermittent nature of uh, fasting.
0: What I've also observed, Alan, is for some of my clients who've tried alternate day fasting, right? Um, And what they found is on their eating day they tend to overconsume calories unintentionally they just got hungrier and this could be like a mindset thing like oh I fasted yesterday so today I just need to eat all the things right I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts there have you does that happen do we have studies around that
1: yeah yeah so the majority of research shows that when alternate day fasting, and even um, time restricted feeding, uh, like really any of the um, those variants, even a twice a week uh, twice a week fasting, the five two model, mm. when any of those variants are done with ad libitum feeding days, or ad libitum being the Latin term for unrestricted there still ends up being a caloric deficit by the end of the week, because there's never a complete compensation of caloric restriction on the feeding days. Mm. It's never, there's always a little bit of margin um, Mm. left over in the, in the deficit range by the end of the week. So if there is any magic in quotes to intermittent fasting, it would be that it removes for the majority of people the need to um, purposely restrict on feeding days. Mm. So um, that might, that that is the kind of the magic of, of IF is is less attention and ma- meticulousness necessary mm. because you're just when you're fasting you're fasting when you're feeding you're just eating ad libitum or or unrestricted. Now this is not to say that some individuals in the minority will completely screw that model up and completely break the general rule that you result in in an energy deficit by the end of the week. Because we're talking about a statistical average of what happens to most subjects. There's always going to be a margin of people for whom this absolutely does not work. And they absolutely will be able to eat 10,000 calories on their eating days Compared to their fasting days, and, and I've seen
0: that. Work. I've seen that. It's it's very interesting.
1: You know <laughs> yeah, I've I've seen it too. Yeah. <laughs> I've I've seen it with time restricted feeding, where you only give yeah. somebody four hours to eat. They'll eat four thousand calories in those so four and, hours.
0: <laughs> and Ramadan, and I. The reason I bring that up because it's such an interesting time. Because here in England, we can fast up to eighteen hours, so we literally have about six hours to eat at night but you still find people who haven't lost a single kilo purely because they're able to consume that many calories within the six hour in six hour windows even though within that time they're going to the mosque to pray they're playing with their children so somehow they're finding time to eat all those calories that they didn't consume right so, say I'm
1: 100%, yes.
0: So, say I'm fasting Ramadan and I want to maintain muscle mass and I only have six hours to do that. And this is going to last a month. How do I do this, Alan?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Protein and resistance training. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, that, that, there's a fair amount of research on bodybuilders during Ramadan. Mm. And uh, surprisingly, even though there's a hydration compromise going on, ge- generally speaking, throughout the, the span of Ramadan. Mm. They keep their muscle. They keep their muscle as long as protein is set at at least 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight or, or 0. 0.7 mm. grams per pound of body weight. And if some people really, really want to nitpick, okay, a gram per pound of lean body weight then um you are going to maintain your lean body mass as long as that 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 plus the resistance training is in play you won't have any problems.
0: Hi everybody thank you so much for watching the first part of the amazing interview with with Alan Aragon. The universe couldn't really handle the awesomeness of that conversation, so we had we had some technical issues, um, which means we are going to have a part two of this conversation, and it's going to be absolutely epic. We're going to talk a bit more about intermittent fasting. We're going to talk about keto diets as well as other diets. We're going to dig a bit deeper into meal and macronutrient timing with regards to muscle building as as well as fat loss um lots of cool things to be spoken about i have a lot more questions that i haven't asked that i'm looking to to ask so stay tuned keep your eyes peeled for the announcement of the, the second part of this episode talk to you soon Bye bye